at Low Park View. This is Pastor Thomas. And uh, this week on the training podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. Um, we're actually sticking with what the name of this podcast is, training. And so uh, many of you are probably aware that we are in the uh, the book of Acts in our sermon series. We've been in the, the book of Acts for some time now. And it seemed appropriate that we would spend some time talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so this week and um, in a future episode, uh, we will have another teaching on the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is given special attention, special prominence. We see the acts of the Spirit really clearly in the book of Acts. And so it seems seemed good to us uh, that we would do some teaching on this. Um, so let's, uh, let's dive right in. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? God's Spirit dwells in you. If you belong to Jesus, you have God's Spirit dwelling inside of you. Now, imagine having a house guest, someone living within you, within your house, and a friend asks you what that person is like. Can you imagine saying, well, I'm not really sure what that person is like? That would be weird. Um, the Spirit is is not a, a temporary house guest, but is the life-giving presence of God himself, the same Spirit that called all of the stars into existence, that, that called the universe into existence, dwells within you. How could we be content to know only a few things about him? The book of Acts, we know, is, is replete with references to the Spirit. If there's one book of the Bible that's more sort of concerned with the person of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, um, it's it's got to be the book of Acts. So while we are, are learning in our worship services from that book, seems right we should we should take this time. So this this uh this session, this uh, part one of this is going to be the person of the Spirit. That's what I'll talk about on this uh, episode. And uh, in a future one, we'll talk about the work of the Spirit. So the person of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. And I want to start with a little uh, little imaginary scenario. Now imagine it's Monday evening and you hear a knock on your door. And you answer. And two very pleasant, well-dressed men with name tags uh, at, in their early 20s, they ask if they could speak with you about Jesus Christ. They're, they're, they've got their white button downs, their ties. You know who I'm talking about. Um, it's Elder Smith and Elder Marple. These are Mormon missionaries. And during the course of your conversation uh, with them, you mentioned that you know God has saved you, that you have his spirit within you. Yes, they say. They would agree. The Holy Spirit is God. And they would say, that's right. And they would say, Jesus and, and the Holy Ghost are two of the spirit children of our Heavenly Father. And that if you obey the Father, you submit to uh, their teaching, you too can become a divine spirit child of the Father. Wow. Um, they too believe that the Spirit is God, but they, they would actually they would deny the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three persons in one. Now, here's my question for you. I'm not just, I'm not just bashing on them or something. In that example, what would you say to them? What would you say to those young men? How would, what passages might you go to to demonstrate that the Spirit is God himself, not a created being, as they, as they would say, um, that he is in fact God of God, um, self-existent, um, and, and all the things that we would ascribe to, to God? If, if you're anything like, uh, like me, <laughs> it wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't be easy. There would not be a ton of, you know, immediately coming to mind uh, passages that that address that, and uh, I think I, w- I would like to have probably a better answer and a better understanding of the Spirit. Now, in case I've made you nervous there and you've thought, "Oh no, 
Maybe, maybe we're wrong. No, 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 no. Uh, here's what the Nicene Creed says. This is a fourth century Christian document, um, very important to the life of the church. It says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. This is what Christians have believed for millennia, for thousands of years. The Spirit is God. He is to be worshiped. He is to be glorified. He is worthy of everything which the Father and the Son are worthy. He is truly God, and he is truly personal. He is the Lord. So, what we can say about this, what, what can we say about the Spirit? First, today, uh, we're going to discuss the, the person of the Spirit. And two, two big ideas I want you to get out of this, uh, this episode. First, that the Spirit is a person. And second, that the Spirit is God. The Spirit is a person and the Spirit is God. Uh, so let's dive in. The Spirit is a person. First, uh, and maybe this is a bit of a, a prologue, we, we first have to just confess the elusiveness of the Spirit. The Bible tells us a lot about who the Father is. The Bible says much, particularly the New Testament, but it's all over the place too. The Bible says much about Jesus, the Son. But the Bible does not say nearly as much about the Spirit. That is not because the Spirit is unimportant or because the Spirit is not equal in status or significance or influence with the other members of the Godhead. Uh, but there are a couple of reasons for that. A couple of reasons that the, the Spirit is, is somewhat elusive when it comes to finding um, so, sort of who he is according to the Bible. First, um, while the Godhead is never divided, Father, Son, and Spirit are never divided in their desires, div- divided in their will, they are divided in their work. It's the Father who sends. It's the Son who redeems. It's the Spirit who applies redemption. While they're united in purpose and they're always and and all are active in any one act, um, there's not any one thing that happens without all three of them being active in it. Um, but that does not. Um, they do not all do the same thing. Um, you may have heard probably me or others begin praying and say, Father, we're so thankful that you died on the cross. And yet it wasn't the Father who died on the cross, was it? No. And it's, it's, it was Jesus who died on the cross. Um, the Father did not. So there's, there was something that the Son does that the, that the Father did not do. The Father sent the Son to die on the cross, um, but he did not himself. The Son does not regenerate us. That is the work of the Spirit and, and not the work of the Father, even though he sends with the Son, he sends the Spirit to do that work. And so while the, the Godhead is united in will, united in purpose, they're not united in every single act. They don't all do the exact same thing. And it's for that reason that because the Spirit's work is mainly focused on applying the words of the Father and sort of executing the will of the Father in sort of a behind-the-scenes way, um, that it's often not as visible when we read um, the Old and New Testament. The Spirit reveals truth to us. The Spirit um, especially magnifies Christ to us. J.I. Packer has a really helpful illustration of this. He says, The Spirit is a floodlight to direct us to all the Father has said and all that the Son has done. You don't stare at a floodlight. You stare at the thing it is illuminating. And so it is with the Spirit. We, we don't need to know so much about the person of the Spirit because his work is focused on the other members of the Godhead. The Spirit exists to point us to Jesus. Um, and so it, he actually, he wants to get out of the way. The Spirit does. 
wants to get out of the way so that we can focus on Jesus. And so it's, it's no wonder that when we read the Bible, um, we don't see a ton of information about the one who's, whose grand purpose is, is to point us to Jesus. Um, so the personhood of the Spirit. Having confessed the elusiveness of spirit, what what is the what do we mean when we say that the spirit is a person? Well, what makes a person a person? Uh, uh, well, a person is a subject, not an object. Uh, a person can say, "I, I want, I do something." It's not just something we do things to, but it's something that can have a a, a person has volition, desires, a will. Um, Objects do not have a will. <laughs> this this table that I'm recording this podcast on does not does not have a desire that I could violate or not violate. A person has volition. A person has a personality, preferences, characteristics, a, a certain presence in the world that sort of distinguishes that person from other persons. Um, this table versus another table that is exactly the same, um, it doesn't have a personality. It it may have sort of similar similarities. Um, but to be a person means to have um, those things that distinguish one from another. Is that what we see? Are those the things we see when we look at the Spirit in the Bible? Um, a subject that can actually do things, can say, I, I want, I, etc. Does, does the Spirit have volition, according to the Bible, a will, which could be you know, complied with or violated? Uh, does the Spirit have a personality, preferences, characteristics, um, something in the world that distinguishes uh, that person from another? Now, does this matter? <laughs> does this matter? I mean, are, are we just splitting theological hairs and kind of navel-gazing and entertaining ourselves with this? Uh, no, I hope that's obvious. Um, the last sentence of the book of Matthew, you're probably familiar with it. It's been very integral to who we are and, and who the church is. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? Right? How is that? I, I don't know about you. Jesus himself we know is at the right hand of the Father now. He is not literally within me. His, his physical body, Jesus we know, he has a, a human body right now. In the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father is a human body. His name is Jesus. We are there with him in Christ, and he is here with us in Christ. Um, how? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. In Ephesians 4, we, we read about how there is one body, there is one spirit, um, that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This matters. Um, Galatians 4, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. If, if the spirit is not a person, the Trinity falls apart. It, it's not three co-equal in dignity, um, in essence, the same, uh, but three unique persons. Uh, it's two, two people and a force, a blind force, something like that. If the Spirit is not a person, then we are not connected to Christ by faith. We cannot truly say that, that God is with us in the sense that Christ has promised, I am with you always. Um, if the Spirit is not a person, God is not really with us. We have to get this right. Um, take a look at a few things here. Uh, first, I'll point you to um, Hebrews 10. I'll read this to you. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. It says this. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? Well, I'll start at the beginning. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And here's the key point. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and tune in here, and has outraged the spirit of grace. What we read in in Hebrews 2 says that the spirit can be outraged. A blind force cannot be outraged. A a sort of naked will is sort of the will of the Father. If, If all the spirit is is sort of God's creative energy or his all his dynamism sort of coming to pass in a certain place and time, um, which is as as some understand it, then how how is it that we have here the spirit being profaned and and being outraged? The spirit can be outraged. That's something that only people can do. Acts fifteen, you guys will remember that we were in this uh, this passage quite recently. Uh, Acts fifteen twenty eight says for it's and this was the Jerusalem Council where the the question of the Gentile status in the early church was decided. Acts fifteen twenty eight says for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these, and so forth. This was in the letter that was written to the Gentile Christians. It had seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Things can apparently seem good to the Holy Spirit. The implication being that it could have seemed bad to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has preferences. It's not a God's impersonal blind force, God's sort of hitman acting in the background of the universe. The Holy Spirit is not God's energy working remotely somehow. The Holy Spirit is not just blind power. The Holy Spirit is a person. Here we see the Spirit being outraged. We see the Spirit seeming things seeming good to the Spirit. And so the, the Spirit is a person. Concretely, we can say the Spirit is a person. Um, I have a, a number of other passages to go through too, but I'll, I'll just leave it there. Um, uh, what about the divinity of the Spirit? Is the Spirit really God? Um now, I hope you guys don't mind if I get historical here. Uh, in the middle of the thir- fourth century, uh, the question of the divinity of the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit really God, had not been set down in sort of the official uh, consensus of the doctrine of the church as a matter of, of agreed belief. Um, questions had arisen from a certain group. Uh, there was a group called the Nomatomaki, um, which literally means fighters against the spirit. Uh, I, I can't imagine that they invented that names for themselves. Anyway, the pneumatomachy, um, what they said was that the spirit was created by the son and serves the, the father and the son. And so well, they affirmed the personhood of the spirit, but they believed that the spirit is not equal to the son or the father in his essence, in his substance, who he is, or in power. So the spirit was sort of a lesser being um, created by the son. So personal, a personal being, but sort of a little brother in, in the Godhead. So they denied the divinity of the spirit while upholding the personhood of the spirit. We've seen in the Bible, just as I've gone through those passages, the spirit's certainly a person. But what would it look like if the, the spirit is a person but is not God? Sort of a lesser, like, like the pneumatomachy of that day. Why does that matter? Um, 
why does that matter? So here's what here's what John Feinberg, who is a great um, great theologian, who happened to teach at the school I attended, uh, Trinity, um, the EFCA theological school in um, Chicago. Here's what he says: As to the Holy Spirit, if He is not fully God, the implications for salvation are again serious. Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit regenerates believers and indwells and fills them. But if the Holy Spirit is a lesser God or no God at all, how can we be sure that he can do any of these things? Moreover, unless he is co-equal in being and purpose with the Father and the Son, what guarantees that even if he tried to do such things, the Father and the Son would recognize his actions as appropriate and relate to us accordingly? What John Feinberg is saying is, if the Spirit is a person but not God, then how can we possibly be saved? How can we have confidence that the power of the Spirit in us can actually do all the things that God promises? If, if the Spirit is a person but not God, we're damned. Now, good news is the Spirit is God himself. And, and there are sort of two, two lines of evidence we might follow. Uh, first are those that, that the texts in the Bible that directly address the, the divinity of the Spirit. Uh, so we'll go back to Matthew 28, um, just as I mentioned before. Matthew 28 um, says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I uh, may not have thought of it before, but here this is probably one of the most significant sort of Trinitarian statements in uh, from coming from Jesus, that we would be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One thing to point out is that Jesus does not say baptize them into the names, but into the name. The name. There is one divine name. And this, if you're a good sort of student of the Bible, you know that throughout the Bible there is an enormous significance applied to the name of the Lord. Remember Moses in the burning bush, uh, learning the name of the Lord, and throughout the Bible, the significance of the name of Jesus, the name of God, um, so significant. And so we are to be baptized into the name, not the names, but the one name of, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all under the one name of God. Now, would that statement make any sense if the Holy Spirit were the created being, little brother, servant of the Father and the Son? Um, and remember, the significance of God's name. Charles uh, Scobie says, God's name is an expression of his essential nature. Uh, how about Exodus 20, uh, verse 7? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Jesus apparently sees the Holy Spirit as having equal status with himself and with the Father. We are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, which is apparently the name of God. Um, Acts, take a look at Acts 5. If you have your Bible with you, I'll read it to you. Acts 5, 1 through 4 is the story of Ananias and Sapphira who, who lied um, to, in the early church, they lied to God and brought forth a, a, an offering that was not, um, that was deceitful. And um, so it says a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And here's the key part. You have not lied to man, but to God. So let me point that out again. In verse 3, it says, Ananias, why has your why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then that last verse in verse 4, end of verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. And so it doesn't take a, a, a degree in logic to figure out that uh, Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, and later Peter says, you lied to God. And so clearly Peter and the early disciples understood the Holy Spirit to be God. And there's, there's a second line of evidence for the, for the divinity of the Spirit. Those would be, um, and keep in mind, remember, we're back in the living room. We're back with these young men who want to convince us that they're right. These young missionaries, okay, they're uh, Mormon missionaries that want to tell us that the Spirit is a person who is not exactly a divine being. What would we actually say? There's a passage you could go to, Acts 5. Okay, there it is right there. Now here, But here's a second line of evidence that you could go to. Texts that, that, get, that ascribe divine attributes to the Spirit. Things that, only, that the Bible only applies to God that are applied to the Holy Spirit so that we can say uh, the Spirit has attributes that only the, the only God has. Psalm 139, this is probably familiar to some of you, uh, a wonderful, wonderful psalm. Um, seven, verses 7 and 8 say this, Where shall I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Notice there, uh, where shall I go from your Spirit? From or where shall I flee from your presence? It's clear, just just right there, we can notice that the Spirit is God's presence. Um, the the Spirit is the presence of God. Uh, and in verse eight, you know, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, it's talking about everywhere that I could possibly get away from you, I can't because you are everywhere. So here in Psalm 139, the the Bible is is applying the divine attribute of omnipresence, being everywhere all the time, all at once, to the Spirit. The Spirit is omnipresent. Um, And that's because every attribute of God is present and active in all three members of the Trinity all the time. Um, It's not as if, you know, the Spirit is omnipresent, but um, Jesus is sort of, he's omniscient, and then the Father, he gets to be like their superpowers that they had to divide up for some weird reason. No, they are all, all of them all the time. Okay, what about 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 11? It says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Uh, this, this verse is applying omniscience, uh, the knowing of everything. We, we know we often think of God the Father uh, knowing all things. He has understood every situation, knows every fact, uh, the location of every atom of dew on every blade of grass throughout the universe. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. He knows where every, what is going on all the time. He cannot be lied to. He cannot be deceived because he knows everything. And here we see in 1 Corinthians 2 that the Spirit has searched the depths of God and understood every thought. As the spirit of a person understands that person's thoughts, so the spirit of God understands God's thoughts. The spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 2, is omniscient. The spirit is omniscient. Now, finally, coming back to the Nicene Creed, this the Christians have affirmed this together for everywhere for thousands of years. Uh, started, started off with this. 
that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. And so there's, there's so much that we could say, so many more things that we could say. But what we see in the Bible is clear, compelling evidence that the Spirit is a person, a person with a, a personal will, with preferences that could be uh, violated or aligned with. Um, he can be offended. The Spirit can be offended. The Spirit can, it can seem good to the Spirit. And at the same time, we see that the Spirit is not just uh, a person like you and me, but is God himself. And this is something not only that the Bible itself uh, confirms, um, but it's something that Christians uh, throughout history have confirmed as well, which is helps us as we understand Scripture to be sure that we're heading in the right direction. So, um, how why should this matter to us? How should this affect our day to day life? Now, I know we've. I hope you feel confident now that if someone were to say, "Well, actually, we we think the Spirit is just a uh, sort of little brother to Jesus." wonderful helper, but not quite divine, you would know where to go. Well, I know in Acts 5 it says this, or I know in 1 Corinthians 2 it says this. What about Acts 15? And and you might actually have a, a feeling of where to go with that. But what about sort of the day-to-day life? How does this, to, to bring it to a point, how does this truth make us more whole in our discipleship to Jesus? How does this help us become whole disciples? Well, three things I want to say and to wrap up. First, I want you to be assured of God's presence. God, by his spirit, he has not sent you sort of some help from afar, sort of, you know, if my son comes to me in the middle of the night, there's an intruder. How rude would it be for me to say to him and unloving and uncaring to say, hey, uh, great, well, here's a baseball bat, and why don't you take that and go deal with that problem on your own? No, God is not like that. He has not just sort of said, oh, you've got some problems. Well, why don't I I give you sort of a, a lifeless weapon that if you can wield it properly, will somehow help you. Rather, he said, what, what I would do as a good father is I'd say, I'm giving you my own presence. I am coming with you. In fact, get behind me. <laughs> Let me stand between you and the biggest issues that are facing you, the biggest threats to you. Um, so be assured of God's presence. Second, be assured of God's power. God himself is within you. The very same power that called all of creation into existence, that sustains the universe by the word of his power, is in you. He is not a half-hearted intercessor hoping that he can possibly help you as long as he doesn't get overwhelmed by the situation. No. Within you is the one who has understood everything that you are about to go through, have gone through, will go through. Be assured of God's power within you. You will never meet a, meet a situation where God is overwhelmed by what is in front of you. And not just sort of God from heaven looking on, but God within you. God within you is not overwhelmed by what you are looking at, but what you are experiencing. Be assured of God's power. Be assured of God's presence. Be assured of God's power. And lastly, be assured of God's gospel. The reason that the very holiness of God, remember, we said every every attribute of the Father and the Son can be applied to the Spirit. And one of those things is holiness. That's why, I mean, Hope it's not lost on us that the Spirit is holy. The Spirit is set apart. The Spirit is perfect. In all of his ways are perfect. And so it should astound us that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, can live within us, can dwell within us, can share our our space somehow with us. As I was preparing for this, I, I thought, 
Am I taking the Spirit into situations that He does not wish to go? Am I saying, am I saying things, doing things that if the if I could if I had a visible sort of view of the Spirit in this situation, He would be sort of cringing. Don't say that. I I don't want to be part of this. He He's stuck with me, right? He's He's in me. He's the He's not leaving. Because of Christ, God's Holy Spirit can dwell in us. His his very own holiness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, that in Jesus, we can actually become the righteousness of God. And that's because God has actually sent his own righteousness into us. So that from the inside out, transforming our hearts to transform our minds and our wills and our affections to become more and more like Jesus. God has not left us alone. Friends, be assured of God's gospel, God's spirit within you, confirming, encouraging, you are never alone as you try to live this Christian life in neediness and desperation for Jesus. So be encouraged. Go in the love of Jesus, and we'll, we'll talk about this more on a future episode. God's Spirit. <laughs>